Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, February the 8th, 2019. This is episode 2,377 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's a Friday, you know that what that means. It is an expert council Q&A show. I've got a lot on deck for you today. Here we go. Jeff Lawton on composting pine straw. Amazon Web Services versus WordPress with Nicole Sauce. How to bypass a glow plug circuit board with Derek Butpetro, uh, who might be our new mechanic expert council member. Uh, what is your right of movement when impeded by others? Uh, former law enforcement officer Steve Wise will talk to us about that. Developing core structure for homeschoolers with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. Roof versus ground mount solar with Sean Mills. Storing homemade bread to avoid waste, Keith Snow. And do you even know where this Green New Deal that Oxia Cortez is talking about came from? I'm going to tell you that in my segment today. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and just dive right on into today's show and take our first question, uh, or actually answered from an expert council member, Jeff Lawton. And we have somebody with an abundance of pine straw available, concerned about acidity, too much acid in the soil not being a good thing, so... Jeff, can we compost pine straw, or is it going to give us problems? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And uh, my question comes from Mike in relation to pine needles, which he's uh, got quite a supply of coming over the fence from his neighbour, and he's been scraping them up off his garden and, and um, just racking them up and disposing of them, I think, and... Uh, Mike wants to know if you can use them in the compost. Well, yes, you can, because they've been alive, they can live again. It's just a matter of balancing up your compost a reasonable amount. If they're brown, they're part of the carbon in the compost. And compost naturally brings things closer to neutral. So the the other components that you put together with your compost, and I'm, I'm releasing the compost um, animation in the next few hours, actually, so you can pick it up online. 18-day compost, you can neutralize most elements in compost. Now, before we talk about that, we us realize that pine needles themselves can be used on acid-loving plants as they are, strawberries um, and blueberries and things like that that love acid conditions thrive with pine needle mulch. But if you put it through the compost, it gets combined with uh, manures and uh, green plants and... Um, if you're using plants from wetland areas, they'll naturally be more calciferous. So interestingly, when um, you get um, plants that grow in acid conditions, often they're, they're more alkaline. And plants that grow in acid conditions, like pines, um, grow in alkaline conditions and produce acid mulch, should I say. So include your pine needles as brown mulch when they're already brown. Um, and the high carbon component. Um, mix them with your, your manure and your fresh greens. Uh, take them through a fast, hot composting cycle. And um, when it comes to the end, just check your pH, but I think you'd be pretty right. It might favour slightly towards acid, but it won't be extreme. So it's one definite way that you can use your pine needles and not worry about them. But just do check it and, 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 and vary your recipe with that component 
the dried pine needles to the ratio that comes out at pretty close to neutral should be just a little bit acid um, just uh, 6.5 is perfect just half a point past seven okay there you go i guess my only addition to this is people do worry today so much more about every little nitpicking thing than they used to um and i'll, I'll tell you what it is It's 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 the, the the second side of the blade of the internet. The first side of that blade is all the all of the confusion that you can cut through today. All of the um, like you don't know something instead of going down to a library and going through 20 books. And in 15 minutes, you can cut straight to it and you can find the core truth of things. The other side, the way it cuts the other direction, is that everybody has an opinion. Uh, this isn't bad as long as you understand it. Just so I'm clear, everybody has an opinion. Everybody reads everybody else's opinion. People take opinions, turn them into facts without having any knowledge that that's what they've done. They really don't know. They repeat it as a fact, and it's like the old uh, telephone game, except since it is on the Internet, since it's text instead of verbal, uh, a lot of it gets actually reproduced, repre repeated accurately. So, well, pine needles will turn your soil acidic. Becomes something everybody knows even though nobody's actually, well, tested the soil to see, well, how acidic does it really make your soil? Because the truth is that green pine needles have quite a bit uh, of ability to affect pH toward the acid side. But once they dry out to browns, like uh, Jeff was talking about, it's very little. It's very little at all, really. And so it's, it's not even that big a concern. And then composting pretty much fixes so many things that's you know it's just no longer a problem uh once that's done mixed with other things so just be careful i think i've said this before but when you read something online and somebody says oh if you do that this will happen you you have to take that like you were at a bar there was a guy that wasn't fall down drunk like couldn't stand but you can tell he's been there a while You know, if you if you asked him if it was like five o'clock and you asked him what he had as far as being there, he would have told you breakfast like that, uh, that type of thing. Uh, you know, he's been there a while. He, he's he's worked up some bullshit and he's heard some things. And you say, hey, I was thinking about X, Y, Z. He says, oh, let me tell you, if you do that, you need to make sure you go do this first or whatever. You wouldn't necessarily, just because the guy was tanked up a little bit, assume he was wrong. But you also would not just assume he was right and start making decisions in your life based on what some random person you, you, you know, bumped up against at a bar told you. When you hear, you know, people you don't really know, they don't have a track record with you, just somebody said something somewhere, then you need to look at it that way. Because when, you know, when I was a kid and it came to making compost, nobody went online to find out that, oh, if I put this one thing in here, my compost will kill my plants or something. And people just took everything they could get and piled it up and made compost. And somehow people did really good before they worried about every nitpicking thing. So that's my little addition there. Next up, I have a question for Nicole Sauce, someone considering building a new website and looking at two different platforms to do it, with one being the tried-and-true WordPress And the other one being Amazon Web Services, which does have a lot of new technology available and a lot of advantages. I really don't know that I could make a distinction there myself because 
I have died in the wool WordPress user now for 15 years. So, Nicole, what are your thoughts on this? Good afternoon, TSP. Nicole Soss here with a question from Zach about AWS. What's AWS, you ask? Well, that is Amazon Web Services. So Zach asks, what are your thoughts on Amazon AWS? Is it a good alternative to WordPress for website development given all the other tools available there? I don't have any experience with WordPress or AWS, so I may be way off base. Just see ads for AWS so often that I thought maybe everyone would be interested in your thoughts on it. Well, Zach, that's a pretty good question, and I can understand why you might be a little confused about AWS. In fact, when I got this question, I did not answer it right away because I have not looked at AWS since 2003. Okay, so it was a long time ago, back in my old days, software development startup company on the West Coast days, we had a really fantastic, cool tool idea where a person could upload a document or a manual to be translated into another language or languages, and we would analyze electronically with little bots and an algorithm the entire thing. And it would spit out a quote, and then our tool would route it to the appropriate human translator. Also, if we had done those, like, certain phrases in there before or in another book, you know, like, a strings of words mean something similar. If it's, you know, German to English, a string of words will mean something. Just trust me on that. It would identify some of those things and suggest translations to the translator to make it faster. And in this way, it could bring the cost down. And all of that crunching required a lot of computing power. And so we evaluated Rackspace and AWS to see which one would be a better option for the company to do all of that computing. And we ended up choosing Rackspace, truth be told. So when I got this question, I went off into a tizzy because I had no idea that AWS had a website building tool. I was like, where have I been? And I dug and I dug and I dug. And then finally I asked two friends who are more likely to do things on AWS than I am, who I work with is in the web development world. And I said, so what do you think about this? And it turns out that AWS still doesn't have a website building tool. So I thought like Amazon had launched like Wix or Squarespace for websites. And I was like, huh, I better check that out just so I know what's going on. So here's basically what, what AWS is. It's a computing platform. So it crunches stuff, right? You, that could be like handles your intranet. And especially if you're a large corporation with distributed different facilities, it's really cool because it can crunch it on Amazon servers and you access it via the internet, but you don't have to have a big giant room that you have to air condition full of server power. So it's a way to take that whole IT infrastructure of your company and outsource it. And what was revolutionary when AWS launched and is still one of their differentiators is that you pay by use. So if today you need a little bit of their service and tomorrow you need a ton of it because it's Amazon and they're huge, they can scale. So they can go from zero to a million miles an hour in IT crunching power for you. 
and all they'll do is charge you by use, which means you get charged a little bit on day one and a lot on day two in that, in that situation. And, and that's really good for a certain size of company, right? You're doing enterprise things for large distributed com- companies. The other thing it's great at are web apps. So what I described to you that I was working on was a web app that needed a lot of computing power, but again, smaller company don't want to have a big room full of servers, right? And so we used that, although the website, the actual website itself was hosted somewhere different. Now, as I said, we used Rackspace instead of AWS because when we did the cost analysis, Rackspace made more sense. And that's because our company had predictable traffic as opposed to really high and low spots. And that's, that's how we made that decision. So can you host a WordPress site on AWS? The answer is yes. You can go to AWS as your hosting provider and set it up to host a WordPress site, but it's a phenomenal pain in the butt. Okay. I use get a host now and WP engine for a reason. It's because it's super easy to host there and, and it is a managed web hosting environment, right? If there's a real problem that requires a room full of engineers to fix, their engineers have to fix it. I don't have to fix it. So with the AWS system, again, back in my software days, we had a room full of engineers working on stuff like that. And so they would have been working with AWS, but having to deal with fixing their own environment or paying AWS to fix it, right? So I would say, why would you do that unless you're a huge company that has a, you know, like eBay (laughs) with a big e-commerce, e-commerce setup? There's no reason. You're just going to like have headaches and frustrations and have to pay somebody to set it up. Plus, plus, plus engineers, plus, plus. Now I want to read for you the answer I got from my buddy over at the Liberty Lab, who is the person I outsource to when I need something that might need to be on AWS. Like I did a project two years ago called the Story Bank, which was a predictive tool that goes onto a website, but we needed to host the documents and other things elsewhere. And AWS was one of the contenders. Like when we get to that point in a website, by the way, guys, I'm not building it. I am overseeing, is it usable to the end user? And I'm outsourcing it to the smart guys who are engineers and work in the database world and the, the detailed infrastructure world, right? Okay, so this is what he says. Today, WordPress runs nearly a third of the internet. One third of the internet, including some of the most recognizable and most frequently trafficked brands online. It's awesome, period. It's easy to set up. It's easy to customize. It's easy to scale. It's very cost effective. You can do it yourself. However, you may want to hire the talents of an organization like his, the Liberty Lab, like mine, Spark Communications Group, like Josh's over on Zello, get a host now, right, to get you started. They are guided by the principle of give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish feed him for a lifetime. And he's right about that. When you choose a web, a web developer, choose somebody who's willing to hand you the keys to the car so that you can drive the car, right? They will set up your website with good tools, plugins, themes, and frameworks and teach you how to maintain it. Or you can, of course, outsource maintaining. 
And when it's time for an upgrade, you can use them. AWS is awesome too, but for a different reason. We use AWS when hosting more technically demanding custom applications. AWS is for programming nerds who do nerdy programming things with it. It's a great platform, for, but not for someone looking to build a website. Go with WordPress, host it somewhere decent, like get a host now or WP Engine, and don't mess with AWS unless you're huge and need it, right? So I really appreciate the question because it caused me to look back at AWS, and I haven't really been messing with them because I haven't had to. Most of the websites that we build are corporate websites with maybe a shopping cart, but they're not going to be something that's, as I said, doing something crazy like taking translated manuals that were done in Quark and estimating it and routing it to a translator and doing some of the translating. Like that's a lot more time intensive or running a corporate infrastructure where you have massive file sharing between, you know, one place in Singapore and somewhere in New York. Anyway, I did shoot a link to Jack with a, a video from Amazon on what is AWS for those of you who are interested in a pretty clear explanation of it. They do a great job explaining what it is and why you would use it. Also, this reminds me, I thought of a reason where you might actually use Wix or Squarespace. I was on a call with a client, a potential client, and they asked, why would I not use Wix, just build this on Wix or Squarespace? And they were launching a product without any marketing budget at all or a position or a message. And they didn't know who they were targeting. And they were engineers and just hadn't really thought through the sales part. And the answer was, well, you can pay us $5,000 to build this website and, you know, we're going to struggle through trying to develop your marketing message, or you can build something on Wix that isn't going to work for you. So we, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being mean. No, actually though, if you want to use something in all seriousness, if all you need is a specific framework, you're going to use their stock photos and you don't need to go out of the parameter and you're probably not going to grow. That's probably the one time you would use something like Wix or Squarespace. Just throwing that one out there. Anyway, guys, I hope this was a helpful answer. Go out, make it a great week. So I'm just going to say I completely concur with the conclusion here. And I, I know there are some people that I, I just do not understand, but they have some sort of a weird dislike for WordPress. And whatever it is, get over it. Because unless you're talking about doing custom level development, dropping tens of thousand dollars into a custom developed site, you, you, you are just wasting life by using anything other than WordPress. Because of the way plugins work with WordPress, nine, 99 times out of 100, anything you can think of, go, I want my site to be able to do blank. There's either a free plugin or a plugin that's under 50 bucks that makes your website do that. And if it needs some customization, there's somebody that can put an hour's worth of work into it and build you, build you for that and make it work the way you need it to work. And, and I don't know of another platform that's that, that's that good. And the thing about WordPress, it's wide open. So I've tried some of these other builders and stuff like that for people that, you know, maybe it would be helpful. And, and the problem is they rope you into things, they control you, they control things on the back end of the code that you can't go in and manually change. And you might be thinking, well, I don't need to do that. 
You may not need to, but you may need to. And you won't know that you need to until you do need to. And then you'll know that you're hamstrung. And a lot of these builders and stuff do things like, oh, well, we'll do our search engine package for $5 a month. And you're like, screw that. I don't need that. Jack told me I don't need anybody's search engine package. But you might. You might. And you know, normally the search engine packages are bullshit. That's not how the Internet works. But, um, for instance, the one that GoDaddy uses, I can't remember what it's called, but their, their builder... If you don't pay them that extra money, they intentionally block the search engines from crawling your site. You basically turn off a feature for money. And that kind of crap, I just have no use for it. So stick to WordPress. Uh, next up, uh, as I mentioned, Charles the Humble Mechanic, uh, still a great friend of the community of the show, but just due to time constraints and things like that, uh, has elected to step down from the expert council. And so... Um, I have a, a new gentleman by the name of Derek who, uh, who's kind of auditioning for the job. Uh, I sent him one of the most recent questions that was for Charles on bypassing glow plugs uh, circuit board for a military-style blazer vehicle from the 80s. He did a great job on it, I think. We're going to hear from him now, and I, I think we may have found us our, uh, our new expert council member for this position. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from up in New Hampshire, helping out Jack with some survival podcast automotive questions. I've got one from Frank in New York. He writes, is there a way to bypass the glow plug control board in a 1985 K5 Blazer with a 1224 volt system? A few months ago, I purchased a K5 military Blazer. One day as I stepped out of the truck, I saw a computer board on the floor under the steering column. The computer board had just fallen out of the holder. Luckily, I didn't step on it. Without it, the engine cranks but will not start. There are OEM replacements on eBay for about $85 and aftermarket boards for $125. I would like to know if there is a way to bypass the board in an emergency or even permanently. I bought an older diesel truck and didn't plan on electronics. I should have gone pre-83. Attaches a picture of the board installed on my K5. Frank, don't worry about your military blazer being too advanced and having too many electronics. They're about as simple as it gets. Frank is referring to his blazer, which is a Cuck V or CUCV vehicle, and his is called an M1009. There are also ambulance, generator trucks, and other pickup variants. I personally have the M1031 generator truck. These Cuck Vs are powered by the Detroit 6.2 diesel, and although not the best diesel out there, certainly are economical and reliable. Back up a minute for listeners that don't know what a glow plug is. On a diesel engine, the fuel is ignited on the compression stroke. There are no spark plugs. Diesel engines have glow plugs, which are nothing more than metal rods that stick into the combustion chamber, and they heat up when the engine's cold, helping this diesel fuel ignite. Without glow plugs, diesel engine not going to start when it's cold out or even moderately warm. The Cuck V glow system is nothing more than a temperature sensor with a controller, which then actuates the solenoid, which delivers the power to the glow plug, all dependent upon the temperature of the engine. So when the engine's cold, the controller senses this, and it's going to apply the glow plugs for a few seconds before you crank the engine over. The engine starts, and the controller will also apply glow plugs depending upon how cold it is, after the engine has begun to run. This may take five to 15 seconds. You can put a switch on this to bypass the controller, and it's now up to the driver to push the button and wait a couple of seconds and then start the vehicle. If you're not familiar with the vehicle, you're not gonna know the timing of the system or how long to apply them for. So I highly recommend leaving the system as is and fixing it so that it functions correctly. 
It truly is a bulletproof system when everything just works. To bypass all of this, there is a solenoid on the firewall which delivers power to the glow plugs. You can put a push button on the ground side of this solenoid, which will then activate the glow plugs when the button's depressed. Always use a momentary contact button because if you leave the switch in the on position, you will burn the glow plugs out, not to mention have a very large load on the alternators and batteries while it's running. The glow plug systems on these vehicles typically fail because of their age, they're 30 plus years old, they haven't been maintained, or some hack has owned the vehicle before you and has really destroyed the integrity of the factory design. Frank, today is your lucky day because the glow plug card that fell out of your truck happens to be the modern one that you can buy online for about 125 bucks. Your glow plug card is made by glowplugcards.com and does cost about $125 brand new. Highly recommended for anybody with a Cuck V to go out and buy one of these anyway. I personally own a few of them and even a spare. Well worth the money and you know you're going to have a reliable glow plug system with this controller working it. I have a YouTube video link for Jack that goes over the entire Cuck V glow plug system, how it operates with all the different temperatures, etc., etc. Definitely got to check it out if you've got a Cuck V and you don't know how the glow plugs work. If you still want the backup button, that is not a problem. You can actually add a backup push button to the glow plug system with a fully functioning card. Simply find the ground wire on the solenoid. Don't quote me on this because I'm not sure if it was added halfway through or in the beginning of the production run, but there should be a terminal on the aftermarket board as well that will allow for a momentary button to be added. This way you have a fully automatic functioning glow plug system, but yet you've got that backup button in case something does fail for whatever reason. A few notes for Frank and any listeners that own a Cuck V, do a resistor bypass on your truck. Go ahead and Google search this. There's plenty of information on the internet on how to do this. But the glow plug system on the Cuck V is designed to be 24 volts. That way, if it's being jump started by another military truck, you'll be able to get the glow plugs to work. It does this by stepping the 24 volts down using a resistor that's located on the firewall. Now, for civilian use, unless you're jump starting it and you have an entire fleet of military trucks, you really don't need this functionality. So you want to get rid of that resistor because it can complicate things if glow plugs fail. Factory replacement glow plug on the Cuck V is manufactured by a company called Wellman. These are garbage. Nobody wants the Wellman plug because they actually swell as they start to fail. It means the tip will actually expand and you can't get it out of the cylinder head once this happens, or it becomes very difficult to get it out of the head. Now, if they haven't been replaced in quite some time, they are going to fight you on the way out. So there's many methods that you can use. You want to spray them. You want to get the engine nice and hot so that way the tip gets soft and you can try to pull them out. Definitely spend some time doing this repair and patience is absolutely necessary. But once they're taken out, you can install a much better plug. This plug is made by AC Delco. It's a 60G. It's limiting. It does not swell. And it really is a bulletproof plug, highly recommended. Everybody runs them. They do swap in directly with one exception. You'll have to cut the electrical tip off of the wire and put a new spade terminal to make this work. Once you have that upgraded glow card and the ACG Delco plugs in there, you will have a pretty bulletproof system that will start in even the coldest of days. I hope I answered your question. The Cuckby is a great learning platform for the do-it-yourselfer that wants to get their hands dirty. It will be super reliable if you get that glow plug system functioning correctly. Any Cuckby owner should definitely check out SteelSoldiers.com. It's a forum, lots of information. You can get your factory manuals on there. 
and there's plenty of write-ups as far as how to do maintenance and modifications to your truck that will improve its reliability. Thanks for the question. Looking forward to the next one. This is Derek in New Hampshire. All right, so I thought that was a really good job, and I think we'll let Derek maybe uh, handle a couple more questions and, and, and then just make it official. I kind of feel the same way about the uh, next guy. His name is uh, Officer Steve Wise. He's actually a retired law enforcement officer. And uh, he is going to talk to us today about the concept of, of what what are your rights when someone else is impeding your movement. We're not really talking about law enforcement officers here. Uh, we're talking about other individuals. Basically, you're in a public place. You want to go somewhere. Someone will not allow you to go there. It's impeding what you're doing. This does center around um, demonstrations, but I think there's a lot of other places this can come up. Steve, um, let's hear from you on what to do in these types of situations. Greetings, everyone. My name is Steve Wise, and I'm joining the TSP Expert Council as a retired law enforcement officer to answer your law enforcement-related questions. I'm 12 years removed from my law enforcement duties, but I'll endeavor to give you the best answers I can that are fair and hopefully will keep you out of trouble. Today's question comes from Mike. Here's his question. What are my rights and legal courses of action being prevented from either moving on a desired path if I desire or, in the extreme cases, are surrounded altogether. Details. I've just gotten done watching the Kent State Second Amendment walk on Facebook and saw another example of how Antifa and the hypocrisy and violent nature. I didn't watch the end of it, and I don't know if actual physical violence was used, but I did see how hundreds of them gathered to prevent those marching on from continuing. Their tactics were there to yell and chant and profanities and make communications far more difficult and to block and surround the apparent peaceful marchers. This made me wonder, what would I do in this situation? Not a rally or march, but rather something like walking down the sidewalk and trying to drive somewhere. Am I supposed to call the police if this happens and wait for them to come? What happens if they are loud enough to drown out my call or some other reason I'm not able to call? Same questions for me trying to drive down the road. At what point do their rights of standing where they wish and yelling to end on my rights, uh, when do they take action? So uh, let's start by offering a little legal disclaimer. The laws in each state and your jurisdictions are going to vary wildly, so this does not constitute legal advice. I'm providing the best answers based on my opinion and, and how I would have handled the situation as a law enforcement officer and how I would react if confronted with the same situations that you've described. Now, I know you probably feel the same way I do when you see Antifa square off with Patriots. You see Antifa is bad and Patriots is good. You probably saw the video where Antifa person took and swing at a Patriot with an ass baton. That's metal baton. And the Patriot responded with a right hook and knocked him clean out. Now, I'm sure you and I both were the ones smiling and maybe even cheered a little bit. But I'll tell you the truth, the courts will see things a little differently. Courts are supposed to be blind, and politics is not supposed to be involved. It isn't Antifa wrong and Patriots are right. They see John Doe 1 versus John Doe 2, and each will claim the other was the aggressor, and none of the videos will show the full story. Looking at your initial question about your rights, the first important thing to consider is that everyone has equal rights. Your rights do not uh, exceed the rights of others. Your rights uh, going in one direction uh, and stop at the point that you run into another person coming the other direction. You uh, may have heard people saying in the past that your rights end at the tip of my nose. 
We also know that what happens in any disagreement, no one knows who's really at fault. No one sees the first punch, and everybody knows of or has been involved in those those situations where everyone is punished for one person's mistake. You know, the old thing, you can't chew gum in school because one person can't seem to get it into the trash can or make smacking noises. So here's some advice. Whenever confronted, you want to be seen as a victim. You never want to be seen as an aggressor. Change directions. Go a different way. Confronted again, start recording. Get that cell phone out and start recording. And, and change directions again. Clearly ask questions like, is there a way I can leave? I don't want to be here. You know, we need to fight the urge to engage in the fight if we're ever going to win these confrontations. If you're not given a path to get out, get on the phone to 911. Yes, I know, it's going to take forever for the police to show up, but the 911 calls are recorded. Try to get to a defensive area somewhere where you can watch your back and people aren't sneaking up behind you. Be seen retreating. Remember that 911 call. You know, it's recorded. So use keywords like, I'm trying to leave. I asked which way I could go. I am blocked. I feel threatened. I don't want to be here. I need help. This frames you as a victim, not as an aggressor. Another key is don't engage in the arguments. You're arguing with idiots anyway. The real aggressor, aggressors will film you on video, then they'll do some slick editing, and you'll be painted as the aggressor on social media before you can get home that night. If you see law enforcement, try to retreat, retreat to their position. Remember, you have video already, and you are 911 call in progress. You're in a better position this way. Law enforcement should not block you from getting away from a crowd. Use the same keywords. We just want to get out of here. We feel unsafe. Remember, you're still recording the 911 call. I know you may think, I'm a man. I'm here to protect my family, myself. Being equally aggressive or even more aggressive is not going to work in your favor. If anything ends up in court or on the Internet, in the court of public opinion, you're going to lose. In business, we have been given the advice that if you're ever confronted in the workplace, you should hide under your desk. I know, sounds silly. But once you're under your desk, yell for call for help. If who is going to appear as the aggressor, especially if it ends up in HR you know, or maybe later on in court, you're not going to lose that case. Remember that young man who was just standing there smirking at the Native Americans in Washington, D.C.? He did nothing wrong. He wasn't required to retreat. Yet today, he's facing threats. They had to close down his school. And now he's got lawyers taking legal action to sue the people that libeled him. If his teachers had just gathered the students up and retreated to another area, we probably never would have heard about this incident. And if we did, we would have had a video of a Native American chasing down kids. So... When you're part of an organized event, such as the Second Amendment rallies, uh, there are requirements to have a permit, and that permit comes with law enforcement presence. If your groups haven't engaged and worked with law enforcement to provide a safe environment, you're taking a huge risk. If your group doesn't get a permit, you're also taking a risk. When you don't follow the rules and regulations, it doesn't help your position in the public eye or in the courts. We recently had a Second Amendment rally down here that was supposed to be held at our state capitol, and one of the organizers was really trying to get it done, but he was asking for money to cover the permit fees and the cost of security. The state wanted to charge him so that they could pay the overtime of the law enforcement officers to be there. They decided instead that they were going to take advantage of the free First Amendment zone. 
This was an area where they didn't have to pay for a permit and they didn't have to pay for law enforcement. And, of course, what ended up happening is there was more counter-protesters than Second Amendment folks. So while it didn't turn out bad, what if it had? In Atlanta, uh, we've seen KKK march past the MLK burial site on several occasions. Less than a dozen KKK members will be surrounded by hundreds of law enforcement, and they'll be walked safely in and out of the area. They'll be surrounded by thousands of counter-protesters. They, unfor- you know, they have the same rights as we do to march, but they have paid for their permits and they've had law enforcement protection. In Charlotte, law enforcement stood by and didn't keep the crowd separated. The organizers should have insisted on protection and law enforcement wouldn't, uh, should have supplied it. Um, so we're not quite sure if the organizers had all of their uh, permits in order and stuff like that, but if they did, they should have taken all their emails and all their documentations and they should have published that on, on the net for, for everybody to see. And the organizers should have canceled that event. The law enforcement was refusing to provide protection. We have all of our permits in place. We have all of our payments done and they're refusing to provide protection. So, you know, I know Antifa sounds like a bunch of idiots, but they're far from it. They're well-organized and have peaceful people who are acting as professional victims. Then they got a set of blockers, and then they have attackers. And they all dress so similarly, so it's a confused identification in the heat of the moment. This is all planned to make you look bad. Of course, Antima has a group of people that will videotape the whole thing, too. So their quote-unquote peaceful people will be in the front. And they'll come up across you, and then there'll be a line of blockers behind the peaceful, quote-unquote, peaceful people, and the attacker. And if you respond, chances are you're never going to find that, quote-unquote, right person who attacked you. You're being blocked by the crowd. You're going to get painted as an aggressor, and, you know, that, quote-unquote, peaceful person in the first in the front row, they're going to claim you injured them. They're going to play that perfect victim. And so who ends up as the aggressor in court? We are not a world without law. We should try to enforce our rights on, we shouldn't try to enforce our rights on anyone else in public. The courtroom is where your rights are decided, and it's far better to be seen as a victim than an aggressor or a mutual combatant. I know it's probably not the answer you were looking or hoping to hear, but it's the answer that will protect you in the long run. Thank you once again, and uh, hope to uh, talk to you guys again later on. So just kind of my quick addition here, from coming from more of just a straight-up self-defense strategy. Um, when you're dealing with any type of situation like this, let's take it out of the whole uh, demonstration thing or what have you, and you've got a situation where somebody's just basically being an asshole. It is very easy for you to feel like, you know what, you're not doing this shit to me. You can go F yourself, buddy. I will rip your head off and crap down your throat. And you might even look at this person, and you might even think, you know what, I have no problem here. But the problem is you don't know if you have a problem. And especially when, you know, he mentioned taking care of your family. If your family's with you, you don't know what kind of problem you can create there either. Because you see this one asshole. And we have a... Kind of a mental issue as human beings when challenged that we focus 
on this person. And generally we focus on their face to the point of like, I hate your face. I want to destroy your face. And we become tunnel blind. And you don't know that you're dealing with one person. You can never assume in these situations you're dealing with a person or a two people, if it's something like that, or even a three people. You have no idea who else is there, who else is involved, and what's really going on. And there are people who are the epitome of scumbag that will set up situations like this to harm people. Sometimes to steal from them, sometimes to do other horrible things, sometimes just for enjoyment. So avoiding the conflict at all times is important, not just from the standpoint of if it does occur, now you have to explain it to law enforcement for and all the reasons that you just heard, but also because you don't know that if you allow yourself to be sucked into that, if you can end up in a way different situation. There's another thing here as an armed citizen, and I know many of you carry. I'm walking down the street. For some reason or another, some bozo steps in front of me because you can't come through here. And I'm like, hey, F you, buddy. I can go wherever I want to go. No, you can't. I'm not letting anybody through here today. Whatever. She's something stupid. As an armed citizen, I have a responsibility to de-escalate this situation so that it doesn't come, doesn't end up deadly. I can't go off on this guy Like, we're back in high school, and he just told me I can't open my locker. And get into a fight with him. And end up in a situation where I end up underneath him, and I pull my gun and shoot him because he was trying to kill me. And be okay there. One, one of the big things with the Trayvon Martin case was, the, what's his name, George Zimmerman. One of the things they looked at in this, did he initiate the conflict? Because... You can't go starting a fight and then say, well, when I was losing it, I had to shoot him. That doesn't work that way. And every single time you're in a situation where you're armed, be it with a gun, be it with a knife, anything that can be used as a weapon, and you escalate the situation, you're going to become more liable for using the weapon than if otherwise. Where if you've constantly tried to extricate yourself from that situation, and it was one guy slowing you down because two other guys were coming in, and you shoot everybody, it's a lot easier to defend than, well, I was on the ground pounding his face, and his buddy grabbed me, so I shot him, and then I shot his other buddy, and then I shot him. Well, why were you on the ground pounding his face? You know, you see what I'm saying? Like, you got to think at a different level when you're armed than when you're not armed. And I know most of you are, most of the time, right? You have an obligation at de-escalation at that point. You should be doing it anyway. It's a smart move. But, yeah, you can get into a total can of worms here. Let's go ahead and take another one at something totally different. Um, developing... A uh, curriculum, not really a curriculum, more of a course level. Like, I want to build a course on X for my kid for homeschooling. I think the advice here from Mike and Sue LaPriest, though, um, is probably good for anybody that wants to think about developing coursework. There's a lot of reasons we might do this. We might do this for ourselves, for self-directed learning. We might do this because we're an entrepreneur, and we want to develop a course that we want to then sell to other people. So, Mike and Sue, let's talk about that. Take it away.
This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question comes from Paul, and Paul writes, I'm looking through the Internet for teaching resources, and I wondered if you have come across any online resources for setting up a structured course. I'm interested in coordinated templates for lesson plans, projects, self-study, field trips, etc. Maybe I'm being too structured with this question, but there seems to be some subjects that would benefit from a structured approach in areas that I don't have any expertise in. And I think existing templates would help me put something together. Or would you recommend simply looking for existing lesson plans for specific topics? I'm okay with that, but I like the idea of being able to custom design my materials. Any help would be appreciated. Okay, Paul. Um, yeah, good question. Really good question. And I think uh, as I first think about this, I think about designing templates for homeschool families. It's kind of like um, herding cats. Yes. Because every homeschool, every homeschool <laughs> family is different. Now, we belong to co-ops, and we've belonged to co-ops in the past, and there are some things that we've shared with other people, but every time we've shared something, it's been customized because we customize what we do for our family and other people then take it and it doesn't quite work for their family and so they customize it for what they do so uh, our experience is that like for templates and stuff it's really a personal family driven curriculum is difficult to share so what we talk about a lot of times is a homeschool outline right because a lot of times when we're doing schooling one of the things is we'll come across a rabbit hole and some rabbit holes will just pass by, walk around it, and other rabbit holes will dive in, and that'll take us in a direction that we weren't expecting to go. And so we do have some structured ones. We have a program that Sue does. I say we. She designs all this stuff. Is uh, We've got one for Christmas. It's Christmas-specific, and it's a plan that she does every year around the Christmas holidays. We have one that's that we do in the summertime with other families that are invited. Sue does a whole Dr. Seuss uh, plan that lasts for six weeks? Six to nine. Six to nine weeks. And so that's a structure that she has that she uses every year uh, as her structure. Uh, and with that, take it away. How, how do you do that stuff? Okay. Sue? Well, I have five basic steps that I go through. And um, the first thing is I have to ask the question, what's the adventure that the curriculum isn't out there already done? Because you don't have time to design every single curriculum. So it might be a an adventure that you're going on, or it might be a subject. So you may be long division, like we need to play some games, I need some videos, I need to gather information to help with long division. Or it could be an adventure, like we're getting ready to go to Kickapoo, Kickapoo Caverns State Park, camping with our scout troop, and I want my kids to really enjoy that and get everything out of that that they can. So step one is making a decision what you want. Step two, I sit down and brainstorm with my kids if they're old enough, and we talk about the various topics that we could cover there. Kickapoo has caves and bats, and stars are going to be really good there. Then we do some Google searches. We go to the state park website because that's our main adventure. But then it tells us, like, there's the Alamo not the Alamo, but the fake Alamo that John Wayne built to film his movie is right out there by Brackettville. And then it tells you all kinds of other things surrounding the park that if we spent a week there, we could go pick up some of those. Like we just went to Goliad this last month and went to some of the museums near there because we went a day early before our troop did. And it was super fun. And I thought, I didn't develop a curriculum and we didn't really get ready enough. It kind of happened to link up with our history lesson so that it made it a little bit easier so we brainstorm, 
and then we searched the surrounding areas, and then I started Google Workbook. And in my Google Workbook, I set up spreadsheets for each of the subjects. I have math, science, history, writing, um, art, arts and crafts like petroglyphs and all that kind of stuff that we're going to see here. And we, I start researching and adding links and adding videos and stuff like that. And then I research field trips that we can go before we go. So we're going to go to the real Alamo. Then we're going to go to the fake John Wayne Alamo and we can talk about the differences. And that's a really great topic for junior high kids because they like love to argue at 10 to 14. Like, no, I like this better than that. So we kind of try to do a lot of that. So I pick out field trips. We're going to go caving in Alamo Heights. There's a cave that goes under San Antonio that um, it used to be a speakeasy back in the 20s. And my kids have been there. It's really fun. It's, it's really small. Cave. My two-year-old can go in. It's a wild cave. There's no lights. It's not a tourist thing. Um, super fun and exciting. If you like that kind of thing, there's little bats inside. You need the caving equipment. You need helmets. Yeah. And, yeah. And so we and... have we have caving gear. It's one of the things we like. Um, so then step five is... I'm going to add movies and I'm going to do some YouTubes. Then I'm going to get some crafts from Pinterest. Now, anything I get from Pinterest, I save in a Google Doc so that I can um, get it later. Because a lot of times those things disappear on me and I can't find them again. So it's just every Google workbook that I use, I just go through these same steps. I set up the workbook. I set up different spreadsheets. And when you're asking about sharing the template, that's really hard because I'm not designing it like a school teacher says, five minutes. We have five minutes to do this activity and you have to hand things out and you need these scissors. You need, you know, all the ingredients you need to make this happen. I don't put any of that in. Mine is just an outline because I already know that. I know where it is. My kids can run, grab it. So there's a lot of stuff in a school design curriculum that you don't have to put in. So if you're looking at school design curriculum, it's going to be a lot. You're going to do a lot more work than if you're going, I'm just going to outline what we really want to get accomplished while we're doing this. So this is one of my favorite things. I would rather design curriculums and activities than actually do them. It's really (laughs) dumb, but I love it. Okay, so I would say... That's one of the things. And also, when you're using uh, Pinterest, you don't share your Pinterest. Yeah, and you can be on my Pinterest board and see I have saved things for science and history, and I do have a Pinterest board. I'm not super active on it, but I got one. Well, I don't even have one, so there you go. (laughs) Okay, so if you want to see some details about these things, you can ask Sue on Facebook at Halo by Sue, and that's H-A-L-O-B-Y-S-U-E. And she'll send you an invitation to... Yeah, and I'll send you to certain ones where I'm making it up. If I'm making a Google workbook for sharing with people that we're we're sharing a curriculum, I don't share that with anybody who hasn't purchased the curriculum because I think it's unfair to the mom who created that curriculum. And plus my books, I've had them for 20 years. So my books aren't going to match up with anything you find unless you want to spend 100 bucks on a book. Like the literature books I have are older and... Anyways, you got to buy your own curriculum if you're buying curriculum. Yeah, which we try to avoid. We've done a lot of the curriculum yeah. buying in the past, and nowadays we really tend to avoid that. Anyway, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. Paul, it was a great question, 
And I'm here to remind you that designing the life you'd love to live can be enhanced by designing the curriculum that meets your family needs. Back to you, Jack. Great stuff from those guys, as always. Next up, I've got a question for Sean Mills. Guy's got a uh, solar array on the roof of his house. Wants to know if maybe you should move it, it down, make it a ground array uh, down to the ground. He didn't put it in. It was already there. And, Sean, what are your thoughts on this? I think this will be good for people planning solar installations as well as people already have them, by the way, and making a decision of where to mount your panels, how to do it, and why. Sean, take it away. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I've got a question from Ben in Vermont. Ben says, should I move my solar panels from my roof to a ground mount system? The previous owners of our house had a 4.5 kilowatt solar array installed on the roof. We live in central Vermont, so our roof is covered with snow anywhere from 2 to 4 months a year and there's a large maple tree that shades the solar panels in late afternoon in the summer. The roof is a second-story standing seam, and there is no safe way that I have found to remove the snow from them in winter. Further, the roof does not face due south. It's about 15 degrees off towards the east, and the pitch is too shallow. I don't know the exact pitch of the roof, but it looks to me like it might be appropriate for peak summer, but not for the rest of the year. We currently produce enough power from the system to pay for 10 or 11 months worth of electricity a year. I'd like to take them off the roof and build an adjustable ground mount rack in a full sun, unused portion of our property. I am reasonably skilled, so I would do most of the work myself, but hire an electrician to make the final connection back to the grid. Is this a financially reasonable thing to do, or should I leave good enough alone? What are the landmines to look out for when considering this? We will not live in our current house forever, but we'll be here for at least another five years. I've attached the contract we received from the sale that has some additional information about the solar array. Thanks, Ben in Vermont. Hey, Ben, thanks for sending in your question, and congrats for getting into a fully functional grid tie system. That's exciting. I looked at your material list and your contract, and two of the things that popped out to me were that you seem to have optimizers on every panel based on the warranty language, even though those weren't listed specifically in your material list, and you have a five-year workmanship warranty that started in 2016, so you basically have about three years left on that portion, that portion of the warranty. You mentioned the current system pays for 10 to 11 months of electricity per year, so that means you would be looking to get another, say, 600 to 1,100 kilowatt hours out of the system to get the system to handle your annual needs. On the high end of that, you're looking for about 3 kilowatt hours per day, which isn't very much for a 4.68 kilowatt install. Uh, so personally, I would not go through the trouble of moving this array to the ground. Uh, if I were starting from scratch, I probably would put this on the ground versus on the roof, but since it's already on the roof, the calculus has changed a bit. I would bet through a little bit of creativity, you could reduce your annual usage by 600 kilowatt hours and possibly squeeze another three to 400 kilowatt hours in production. Uh, I mean, squeezing 600 kilowatt hours out of your usage is less than one or less than two kilowatt hours per day. 
And so there's, there's lots of ways, lots of little things that you could do every day, uh, that, that I think you could, you could, uh, you could get that done with. Now, you could use water or a long pole squeegee, uh, with a ladder, uh, to clear off some small amounts of accumulation earlier or, or maybe later in the season. Uh, now during bigger accumulations, you could run a safety rope over the peak of the roof from the non-solar side, uh, and utilize a safety harness with, uh, positioning D-rings and a six bar repelling rack to safely ascend, uh, the roof from the shallow side, uh, and then descend your way back down while, uh, utilizing both hands to brush your panels off with a push broom or even a leaf blower. Uh, it sounds like a lot of work, but if you're willing to get up there and take all these panels completely off the roof, uh, it sounds like you'd probably be willing to get up there and, and clean those panels off if you just had a safe way to uh, ascend and descend. And so I would suggest moving in that uh, direction. Uh, you know, maybe another week or two at the beginning and end of the season could end up giving you the production that you're looking for, uh, along with some, some annual reduction strategies. Uh, now the pitfalls you're going to run into is that you're likely going to need another interconnection permit. So you're going to have to jump through all the hoops, uh, that your local utility provider is going to require to approve that interconnection permit. Uh, which could involve a requirement that the system be designed and installed by someone with certain solar uh, industry um, credentials, which you probably don't have. And so, you know, if you if you start to move forward for this thing and then you you send in for your interconnection permit and they say, well, this is the requirement and you don't have the credentials, then now you're either reinstalling or um, or you're paying someone else to do all this work that you're planning on doing yourself. You will definitely have to rerun the conduit. Uh, that could impact your wire sizes. They probably selected a pretty short uh, wire run for this system. Uh, and if you're moving it to a, a, a non-shaded area on the ground, that's going to lengthen your wire run, uh, which may make you have to buy some some bigger wires to handle the electricity. And you're probably going to avoid the workmanship warranty, uh, which means if you, you know, you said you're going to be in the house for another five years. So by the end of that five year period, the workmanship warranty isn't going to be in, in effect anyways. But if, you know, during this process, uh, you break one panel, you bust one solder connection loose, that's on you now to fix. So it's something you should keep in mind. Uh, not to mention, if you do plan on selling this house, most buyers are not going to want a ground mount system due to aesthetics. If they have their choice, they're going to want it up on the roof where they can't see it, uh, even if it is providing a little bit of ele extra electricity while on the ground. Now, you could consider trimming that maple tree, uh, but, you know, if, if you're looking for a 10% increase, um, you might consider the cost of the few months of electricity per year you're paying uh, as well as whether the trimmed tree might impact curb appeal for when you try to exit the home. And you guys say, okay, well, we're going to pay to get the tree trimmed. We might impact the resale value of the house by a little bit if we do that versus the extra 10% of electricity we're getting per year. 
over the amount of years, you know, five, seven, ten years you plan on being in the house. So a lot of moving parts here. But if um, if I'm in your shoes, I get real serious about trying to find that month or two of electricity um, in in savings and electricity savings versus going through the process of moving this whole system down to the ground in order to get that a little bit of elect, uh, extra electricity. Hey, with that being said, thanks for the question. Uh, guys, if you've got any questions on off-grid photovoltaic, solar hot water, rainwater catchment, or even general living off-the-grid questions, keep them coming my way. Uh, if you've got any follow-up, Ben, feel free to shoot it to me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at HackMySolar.com. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Yeah, good stuff from Sean. I'm just going to say that if I was building a homestead and I was going either off-grid or grid-tied solar and I was doing everything from the beginning, uh, that unless it was just not feasible, I would do a ground-mount system. I, don't, I agree with Sean. I don't think I would retroactively change one. Uh, I don't think it's worth it at that point. But I think I would do a ground mount system for so many reasons. And the reason people don't do it is what Sean said, it's aesthetics, and also that it just takes up space. It just takes up space. So if you have no shortage of space, then yeah, you can do that. I guess there's one other thing. Roofs are high. So it generally gets you out of the way of things that would shade your panels. So that would be another thing. You might be in a situation where I've got plenty of room, but everything on the ground is shaded. So that'd be another reason you go through. So what I mean, my to clarify my position, if I had good solar aspect for a ground mount system, I would choose it over a roof mount system for way too many reasons for me to 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 use in between segments on a multi segment show like today. Uh, but I would really look at it hard before I made a decision to put the things up on the roof. That's it. If I did it here. Uh, ever if I add solar to my home, I'm going to put it on the roof because my roof is perfectly set up to do solar. It's got the perfect aspect. Everything's right to do solar. And as cheap as panels are getting, I keep looking more and more at eventually doing it um, because of it just you get to a point where the cost makes sense. Um, and I don't really have a good place for them to go where they wouldn't be in the way. So there you go. Just my thoughts on that. Next up, before we move on to my segment and wrap the show up today, I have a segment from Chef Keith Snow on storage of homemade bread. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating and the Harvest Eating Podcast. Mark from Saskatchewan. What's up, man? Um, if my geography is correct, Saskatchewan is Western Canada. I believe you grow a lot of wheat up there and play some amazing hockey, so that is cool. Um, and I mentioned the, the wheat and the area where you are because it's pretty dry up there. Also, uh, incredibly windy as I understand it. Now, so how do you store bread? Well, first of all, kudos for making uh, bread. That is awesome. We make um, all of our own bread here at the Snow household, and it is lovely stuff. Now, um, the first thing I'll tell you is when you're, if you're baking bread at home, make sure you're cooling your bread on a cooling rack. Um, don't just take it and plop it on a cutting board because it will sweat under there. Make sure it's on a cooling rack and do not by any means even think about putting it away or in a bag for at least three to four hours because it can be warm that long and people make the mistake of tucking it in a, you know, a zip bag or some kind of a bread bag, what have you, and it will start to sweat because it's warmer. 
Um, the bread is warmer than the ambient air. Of course, it will condense and be wet, and that's the fastest way to ruin your bread. How do I know that? Because I've done it many times like a idiot. So you don't want to do that. Let the thing cool off completely. Don't be rushed. Um, and once that thing, I mean, we just, we usually bake our bread at night. It just works out best for us. We'll take it out and I'll leave that thing on the uh, rack until the morning. And then I put it away and it is just fine. Now storing it, um, here's the thing we make, I guess it's 17 inch. We use a Pullman loaf pan at 17 inches. So this loaf of ours weighs over four pounds, like four pounds and maybe one or two ounces. It's a monster loaf. It's delicious. And um, what I do is I'll take that and cut it in half. Half of it goes into a zip bag and then into another zip bag. I put that into the refrigerator in the back right corner and just forget about it. And then I'll keep the other half in one zip bag on the counter. And when we want bread, we open up the bag, slice what we want, toast it, whatever. And very, very, very rarely do we ever throw out any bread. It just does not work. And if you do get, you know, an end piece or something that's a little stale, cut that sucker up and either make breadcrumbs or croutons, what have you. There's always a use for that kind of thing. Um, so the refrigerator will definitely help. Now, what spoils bread is either too moist conditions or too dry conditions because both of those have negative effects. And when you put bread into the refrigerator, um, it can get if you if you don't have it double bagged, it can get moist in there. So make sure you're putting it inside of one bag. The bread is completely cooled off, and then put it into another container. Um, you know, even another zip bag will work fine. And then no moisture will get to it, and that bread will be good a couple of weeks, sometimes at least, in the refrigerator. I don't recommend freezing it because that definitely. Um, and I've had plenty of frozen bread and it's my in-laws sometimes will freeze baguettes and they just don't come out the same. So I don't recommend that, but, um, that's how I store bread, um, a bread box. Hmm. I don't know. I've never seen one that I would just throw bread into. So, uh, Mark, I hope that helps and I uh, hope you're continuing to bake bread. Thanks so much for calling in your questions, folks. Don't hesitate to send one in because I love answering them. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks so much, Jack. Take care. So I wanted to throw in one little option here. Um, I don't think this is anything to do really with the individual asking the question. Uh, I think they're making like a loaf of bread, and it just takes them a long time to eat it. They eat little bits of it throughout the week. Um, but if you are a person that, you know what a lot of us do, and I used to do this a lot more when I had a J-O-B than now that I have a lifestyle business, I'm home all the time, is you certain things for eating for the week, you do everything on the weekend. And so I do know there are people out there that like to do homemade bread, and what they'll do is they'll make, let's say, three loaves of bread or four loaves of bread to last through the week, and that's when they'll end up in this type of situation. My suggestion, if you're going to do that, is make your dough on the weekend, and then through the week, pull off enough for a loaf, throw it in the oven, because the dough store is wonderful in the refrigerator, and you can make dough proportional to how many loaves of bread, and then you're always eating super fresh bread. Uh, and you can even, of course, reduce the size of bread and things like that. And you might be thinking, Jack, I don't, I don't know that that works. Um, 
uh, five years ago, I would have said, I think you're right. I don't think that works. And then I learned about a book that I've reviewed before for you guys called Artisan Bread in, in like an hour a week or something, like 20 minutes a week or something, or five minutes a day. It's, I can't remember the exact title of the book, but I have a link in the show notes for you, and that's exactly the approach they take. You need just a few little pieces of specialized gear. Most of it you probably already have, maybe just understanding how to use it a little bit differently. And you make up this, this ball of dough, and it just lives in your refrigerator, and you pull a portion and make your bread. And uh, I think for some folks that want to do the homemade bread thing, it would make your life easier, and you don't have so much of a concern about storage, because if you make a lot of bread, either you eat too much bread too fast, or you end up with stale bread. Now, as far as bread boxes, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this probably has a lot to do with um, where you live. But I made a bread box in my freshman year of uh, high school. And I brought it home to my grandmother who mumbled something, something, something in Ukrainian and figured, well, maybe I'll have to put bread in this box. And I could tell that she was not real hip on the concept of this. Um, but it ended up working pretty well. It ended up keeping bread pretty fresh. Now, she would still put it in a Ziploc bag and then throw it in there. But it, it seemed like it, you know, it seemed like it actually did help in some way. And I do know some people have used bread boxes in the past. You just throw bread in there. That was kind of the point. Uh, I think your end is going to dry out. I think the biggest thing that Keith said about, and this is so many foods, don't put shit in a bag or a container until it's cool. This, this is just, I mean, I don't eat a lot of it anymore because I try to keep the carbs down, but fried chicken, you want to talk about, Ruining fried chicken, man. Cover that breading up before it fully cools, and then it gets soft, and you just, yeah, don't do it. I don't care what it is. Let it cool before you put it away. All right, that brings me to uh, my section today. Instead of doing a question today, I want to talk to you about what the whole right-wing media is losing their mind about uh, and, and mocking, with good reason, uh, the Green New Deal from uh, Oxia Cortez, Alexander Oxia Cortez's freshman Congress woman uh, out of New York who basically, I, I got to tell you, as dumb as this woman appears, you, you got to think of what she pulled off. She snaked a seat from a long-term, one of the most powerful men in Congress because of how long he had been there. He was so busy planning his next committee, maybe even taking a run at a uh, speaker, that he didn't see to his primary campaign. She was a volunteer that worked for Bernie Sanders saw the opportunity where she lived, went out and knocked on doors and stole his seat right out from underneath him. And once she did that in the primaries, where she's, where she's run for, people say, how did she win? You could take a dead dog and put it on the ballot in this place as, as a Democrat, and it would win. No Republican could ever win this district. So she's not as dumb. Sometimes I wonder if she's like a Jessica Simpson dumb. Like, do you pretend to be stupid to get things done? I don't know. Uh, but she has this Green New Deal out, and it really is pie-in-the-sky bullshit. But I want to talk to you about where this kind of thinking actually comes from and how dangerous it is because it uses so much truth to sell a lie. And many, many years ago, there was a video that came out called Zeitgeist. And Zeitgeist basically showed a lot of problems with religion and how religion is used to control human beings. It 
was really a conspiracy film about 9-11 in, in the body of it, and it did a pretty good job of exposing um, the bullshit of the finances, of how, how the economic system of the world is run. And so that first one, you know, that's, that's pretty much what it was. The second one, spend, it's two hours long. This is a documentary. Peter Jackson, I think, is the guy. Peter something. Uh, guy's really big into the thing called a resource-based economy. And the second one spends about an hour really tearing apart the economic and economic system again, monetary creation system. And this is, it's all mostly accurate. Uh, also the war machine and, and, and the damage that's done around the world and the resource extraction of third world nations. Again, fairly accurate. It then shifts into the technological solution. Now what you have to understand is all three of these movies is a third one that really spends most of its time on the solution. But when you want to control a society, the, the architecture of social design is the most simple architecture of any system in the world. It's always the same. It's, pro it's problem, reaction, solution. I want to get you to do something. I want you to get you and all of your friends to be in agreement with me that we should have this certain rule or law or structure. So I know what I want. So now I'm going to reverse engineer it as the people in charge. To get you to do this, I need a certain type of reaction from you. So then I need a certain kind of problem to present you with. So one way or another, I will design, orchestrate, create, point out a problem. Already knowing that your reaction is going to be a certain way. And already having my solution in place to put in front of you. And this is not just, remember pattern recognition, how important this is. Um, this is not just a formula for societal control. This is a sales formula. Problem, reaction, solution. Hey, look, all your shit's dirty. Hey, look, ShamWow cleans it. Hey, buy ShamWow now. It is the same formula because it works on human beings. We are wired this way, and we are specifically wired this way if we don't know that we're being manipulated through this. If we really think the problem just happened then we're very open to this solution, this promise that it will go away. And this, this, this series of videos does a pretty good job of showing how others have used problem-reaction-solution to control society. But it uses problem-reaction-solution to sell you an idea. And the idea of this, and I'm going to say something here, for because I know I have true believers in this, in my audience. This sounds wonderful. And I believe that elements of this can and will become part of human society in the future. I do not believe the state can be trusted with this at all, even a little bit. Not a tiny rat's ass worth can the state be trusted with this much power. But the concept of resource-based economy is that if you look out at our country, let's not even talk about it globally yet, because but that is the design. It has to be global, and everybody has to do it or it won't work. Where have you heard that before, socialism? Anyway, um, if we looked at our country, so we're going to design our country on this. There is no doubt that there is more than enough of everything for everybody. So what we should do is put all of the resources into a computer, and then, kind of like Star Trek, you get... An allocation. You get credits. You get so much of this. You get this much for your housing. You get this, and everybody gets pretty much the same, unless you have a special need. I mean, obviously, if you can't walk, 
well, you need a wheelchair or some kind of biomechanics or something like that, and I don't. So now the resource gets allocated as it's needed. And we do that, and we eliminate the majority of, of jobs that people don't want to do with automation, which a lot of that's coming anyway, okay? And they make a big case for this in the third one. And then people will just do what they should do. Because you won't need to steal because you'll have enough. And you'll be willing to work because you'll need something to do. And if you don't want to work, it doesn't matter because plenty of people will be willing to do the work that does need to be done. And everything will just be wonderful. And then we can pursue the true destiny of mankind. Again, we're kind of going... You know, invoking the, the, the next generation Star Trek stuff here, that we will just pursue that which is noble because that's what humans really want to do. And it's, it goes much deeper than that. Let me tell you the danger of that. That is all fundamentally truthful. A fundamental component to this is that if, if, if I have two twins, And they are genetically the same. And one is raised, like, in the ghetto, surrounded by gangs. And the other one is raised with everything that person needs to develop as a person. That you can't be surprised when the one that was raised in the middle of street gangs turns out to be a criminal. And the one that was raised properly turns out to not be a criminal. That there's an environmental component there. And if we eliminate that so that no one has to live with that level of loss, with that, with that level of doing without, with that level of self-preservation being so important, like, I have to do this shit or I'm going to die, we'll eliminate most crime. Okay, if you actually can pull it off, I think you would eliminate most crime. You're going to eliminate all crime. You're not even going to eliminate crime down to the point where crime's not a problem anymore. There are people that are raised and given everything you could ever want in the world, and they go out and kill people. And, and human nature is mostly positive, but there's enough negative in it that if you try to make it where people don't have to worry about anything, you're asking for trouble. I, I'll put it this way. I've talked about this before. The wealthiest people in America today should be Native American tribes living on reservations. They should literally be the wealthiest class of people in the country. In general, they are the most stricken with poverty. Now you say, how can this be, Jack? Well, the average Native American, I've looked this up, this is solid information, gets a, a, about $800 a month. They are not prohibited from earning other income. It's not like welfare. We're like, well, if you go out and get a job, you don't get your $800 a month anymore. Over three generations, if the average Native American that has that coming to them, and I have no problem with the fact, because how they get it, it's not my business. They run their own shit. That's fine. But if they had taken half of that for three generations, the families living on these reservations now would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. At least half of them. If half of them had done it. I mean, it's just how the numbers work out. But they won't. Because they know it's coming again next month. And they know it's coming against month. And it is a little bit hard. You know, there's not a lot of business opportunity there. Like there could be, but it's not. So I get that it wouldn't be easy for that first generation. But it would just get easier and easier and easier. And it's you could make the mathematical case for it all day, but nobody does it. So 
What does that say? That says when you put human beings into a state where there's no real incentive, even if there's nothing blocking the incentive, especially if they're in a situation where they just believe that this is the way it's supposed to be, a lot of progress stops. On top of this, who's supposed to administer this? Now, what the Zeitgeist people say, and they're very linked up with a group called Project Venus, which you can look into. And again, I think there's some really interesting ideas in this space. But what they're saying is what you do is you let a computer do it. The computer makes these decisions so that it'll be fair. Somebody controls the computer, I hope, and if we don't, then do we really want to put the fate of humanity in the control of artificial intelligence to determine who gets what and how much? And this whole thing is just a disaster. And that's you're thinking, now, how does this apply to Cortez's New Deal? Okay, some of the stupid stuff you heard in there, 100% independent from fossil fuels in 10 years. Right out of Project Venus. It's right out of there. You've heard things like, well, we'll just get rid of airplanes and use trains. It's right out of Zeitgeist and Project Venus. The concept of having trains that can cross oceans is in there. This is not something you can just do. All right, I mean, salt water is corrosive. I think we could actually link some continents. Like, there's a proposal right now from Russia to build a highway across the Aleutian Islands and the Bering Sea into Russia where then you could get in a car in, like, Jacksonville, Florida and drive all the way to Europe. So if you could do that with a highway, you could probably do that, but it's... It, it's not something you just do, and it's not something you could replace global air travel with. Their belief is that they can run these maglev trains so fast that it would just be easier, and then everybody would just use trains to get everywhere, and we wouldn't need cars anymore. And, I mean, society is moving. This is the danger. You use the truth to sell a lie. The people in power manipulate a completely unfair financial system create money out of three thin air, and then charge people interest on the money that they get that they created with, without putting up any consideration for. And basically every bit of every dollar in America is, is, is created off the back of somebody that works for a living by somebody that doesn't. True. That doesn't mean your solution is a good idea. Problem, reaction, solution. So I, I, I don't want to go too deep into this today. I just wanted to make you aware of this. I have links to the, the Zeitgeist Adenum and Zeitgeist 3 in the show notes today. If you already have a good understanding of how fractional reserve banking works, you almost want to jump like 50 minutes into the, the, the addendum one because it's just it's 50 minutes of explaining how money is created, how it's used to manipulate and control society, and, and some on the, the war machine and, and things like that. But the second half, it starts to go into these solutions. The third one is pretty much most on these technological solutions. And again, I'm, I'm going to say some of the stuff is intriguing. Um, the people behind Project Venus are very futuristic in the way that they're looking at things. And things like how if you were going to design a city today, how you would design a city. Leave the, the resource-based economy out of it. And say, how would we design a city from a standpoint of being the most useful to its, its citizens 
and, and with a round pattern instead of a grid pattern. And that what buildings would do and how they would work. And if you're going to build a new building, why doesn't it generate electricity through all of the ways that we can use solar and wind and uh, even vibrational energy generation tools? And we, I know people like vibrational. This is like some kind of wookie boot. No, I mean, right now there are bridges we're doing this with. Cars drive across the bridge that causes the bridge, bridge to vibrate. And little, little energy generators transform that, that, that extra energy into enough to run all the lights for the bridge. We have that. Like a lot of the stuff that they'll tell you, they'll tell you in these things, like we already have the technology for this. We already have the technology for that is true. And then sometimes they've really jumped the shark with it where they'll say, well, we already have all the technology necessary to have all the vehicles drive themselves. Yeah, no, we're heading there. But I mean, we've had people killed and we've had accidents caused. The technology is not there yet. It really isn't. We can develop it. We're going to develop it. But the difference here is who and how should this develop? The, there's, also, there's so much for the anarchists to love here without a central authority. If the concept is individual groups should build their own thing and do their own thing and we should get out of the way and let people take technology forward and let people come together voluntarily, then this is awesome. But the belief is, well, people just won't do it unless we make them and for it to work, everybody has to do it, then you end up with the Green New Deal. But that's where all this shit comes from. That's why it sounds so ridiculous, because it's based on futurism and a blending of science fiction with science fact and scientific potential. And so if you were wondering where some of this weirdness came from, I, I encourage you, take some time this weekend. Look at these things. Just don't get sucked in. Because... The best way to sell a lie is to use truth to sell it. If I tell you ten things and nine are true and one's a lie, it gets really easy to believe the tenth one, especially when it sounds good. Especially when it's something you want to believe. And I'm wondering who wrote this thing that she put out. Because I don't think it was her. Congress people don't write proposals, they don't write referendums, they don't write laws. There's always some lobbyist connected to some company that writes all this shit and hands it to them. This, when you hear, when, uh, just as we finish up, today, just understand this. When you hear congressmen say, we worked together and we drafted this bill, no, they did not. That's not what these people do. That's not what these people do. Corporations employ lobbyists and legal firms to draft resolutions and to draft proposed bills that they give to the congressmen most receptible to them. They'll do it sometimes with input from them. And then, then the Congress, right, whether it's the Senate or the House, takes it, argues over it, puts things in, takes things out, goes back to the lobbies. They want this. What should we do? Here's a rider. Here's an addendum. Like, that's how this shit works. So the real question is, who took all this Project Venus shit Spun it up with a big candy wrapper full of socialism and plopped it into this chick's lap to put out. And whoever did that has an agenda that is not getting this done. It is getting things of this done. This is the danger of somebody like Oxia Cortez. Ocasio Cortez, whatever. She seems so ridiculous that the press and you guys keep putting her face. Everywhere. 
And you got the right and the left in this country, and who makes a decision in elections is the 20% of the people that don't really stand for anything. They swing election to election, back and forth, like trees. And you only have to win out of that 20%, especially on the Democrat side. The Democrats only have to win about 8% of that 20%, because there's more Democrats than Republicans in the country. That's how the math works out. The Republicans have to win about 14% of that middle. Well, if you keep telling somebody that somebody sucks over and over and over again, sooner or later they start asking if they're so bad, why are you still talking about them? All publicity is good publicity, that type of thing. In some ways, I know you're going to think I'm nuts. She's a lot like Trump. Because she's different than everybody else. Now, she's not going nowhere yet. In fact, I don't think she's going anywhere any anytime. But she can be used as a springboard for somebody else. As a launch point for things that are too radical for the, the people that can get shit done. They won't touch it. Nancy Pelosi even said, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this. No, 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 no we're, we're not having nothing to do with this. But we got a discussion going, don't we? So, I don't know. Somebody somewhere wants something done. And this is a mechanism to engage in discussion. And the other way that this is like Trump. Trump started out with this. We are going to build a great, big, beautiful wall. 2,200 miles, coast to coast, end to end, concrete, 99 feet tall. Okay, everything is true except the 99 feet tall, right? And Mexico is going to pay for it. Woo! Everybody supports Trump. Ah, wall, 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 wall. Lock her up. Lock her up, right? Okay? And then as soon as the guy gets elected, well, we're not locking her up. I didn't mean that. That's not, no, no, no. Oh, it can be a, it doesn't have to be concrete. It can be a fence. Well, we don't need it everywhere. And now we end up with the government shut down. I only want a couple hundred miles. That's what the experts say they want. And the people who are screaming and chanting, wall, wall, lock her up, all are still 100% behind it. Now, where does this come from? With Trump, the art of the deal. The art of the deal. Give the man credit. He's good at this. You take an extreme position, what you want, this is problem, reaction, solution, reformulated, okay? You take an extreme position. What you really want is a moderate compromise. But you're dealing with the other side that they want, they don't want to come in your direction at all. You move them off of their heels with your extreme position. You generate a discussion why your extreme position has some merit, The people in the middle start saying, hey, no, we can't do all this, but you've got to do something. And you pull the other side in your direction. And then you also have plenty of room to compromise. The more extreme your position, the more room you have to compromise. If you start out with a reasonable position, you get nothing you want in a negotiation. You have to start out with an extreme position. You want to discount a product? You've got to mark the price up when you release it so there's room for a discount. It's the same thing. Okay, this Green New Deal is that. As stupid as it reads, because it's dumb. Take an extreme position and say, well, are you not at least for trying to do more with alternative energy? <sighs> Problem? Reaction? Well, yeah. Okay, so we need to do something here. Well, this is stupid. Well, yeah, sure. You see? 
you're just being controlled again. And the people fighting it the most, you think you're helping, but you're not. You think you're helping, but you're not, because you're giving them the platform to get the discussion started. Just saying, it's the way it is. Anyway, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast, and we have wrapped up another week of TSP. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you guys, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by becoming a member. You can learn all about that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. You get a bunch of discounts, pays for your membership, and then some, and you support the show. And if you're an email subscriber, there's a really special little thing in the bottom of the email today. It was there yesterday, and because I'm telling you on the air today, it will be there Monday and Tuesday next week, and then it will go away like a fart in the wind, and it won't come back. So if you're not an email subscriber, you may want to get by the site, click on subscribe, fill out the form, and sign up to get the emails, because it's going to go away. And that's all. I'm not going to mention it again. All right. Um, Additionally, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, the survival podcast uh, page for all of my Amazon reviews. I brought an item around for you guys today, one of my favorite rifle scopes on planet Earth. It's the Leupold VX1 2x7x33. Um, I was going through my catalog of stuff, and I was like, yeah, I need to look that up because Leupold said they were discontinuing it. And last time I brought this around, they had it on sale, marked down even lower than it is right now, um, and it had listed it as discontinued. And that was quite a few months ago. So I was like, I need to go check and see if they finally done it, and then I need to pull that off my catalog and see what is what is Leupold replacing this optic with so I can replace it myself if, if it works out. And I was happy to find out, apparently, they've decided not to dis, dis, discontinue it. Um, there's another scope I mentioned in the review. It's the Redfield Revolution 2 to 7 by 33 It's the exact same dimensions as the Leupold, and it's about 25 bucks less. Um, before I found the Leupold, coincidentally enough, this Redfield is exactly what's on one of my Ruger 1022s. It's a good scope, too. It also weighs almost twice as much, even though they're dimensionally the same. The Leupold has better optics. Loophole's just a better scope, and uh, it's lighter, a lot lighter. So, obviously, I think it's worth the extra 20-something dollars for, for all of that. But the thing is that Loophole bought Redfield. And I think what Loophole started to think was maybe we just need to start phasing out a lot of the VX1 line, because that's kind of their entry-level high-end scope, and let Redfield field as our, as our now sister company uh, fill that role, and kind of step up to, like, VX2 pricing on everything. And I think that, in the end, somebody ran a spreadsheet, and Excel never lies, and like, yeah, you know what, you probably don't want to get rid of this line of scopes. Because um, this is just fantastic. Now, I want to tell you, if I was, if Lou Polk came to me and said, for 200 yards and under, you know, pistol caliber carbines, you know, like Marlin lever actions and 44 Mag 357, the Ruger M77, which I have one of these on, um, stuff like that. We want we want to design a scope, and for some reason, we think Jack Spearco's the guy to talk to. What, what would you design? Um, I would say, God, you're so close. You're so close. Um, I'd leave that objective small at that 33 millimeters because now I can keep that scope low to the rifle. I love that about this uh, scope. But I would build a scope probably in these rough same dimensions as a 1 to 6. One power to six power. I think six is enough. 
And to be able to have a one power scope and keep that rifle dialed down for those quick inside shots would be fantastic. There are some 1.5 by 5 scopes out there. They're all kind of compact in size and way too damn much. Or they're really, really expensive. This is like this is as close as I could get to what I would design from scratch. I love this scope at like 180 bucks now. It is the best deal on the market for that class of rifle. Would I put this on, you know, a, a 700 BDL in 30-06? No, it's not a scope for that. But your 22s, especially your higher end 22s, your pistol caliber carbines, 22 Hornets, you know, your your Ruger, your, your small frame Rugers, uh, Remington Model Sevens, stuff like that, especially in your your lighter calibers. Seven uh, millimeter, eight even. I know that thing can reach out there, but unless you're out there reaching out there, if you're like in a place where your average shot's going to be about 200 yards, this thing is slick. And being able to come all the way down to that two power when you're a woods hunter, and you you know you you jump that deer, and that deer is 25 yards away, running its ass off. Um, being able to go down to two instead of three power, big deal. So I could make this better if loopholes listening. I, I could tell you what to do. But you got pretty close, guys, and I really recommend if you need an optic, you check this out. Um, if you look on the Survival Podcast uh, at the TSPAS page, tspaz.com, and you click on optics, you'll see one optic that I, I care this much about that I've actually written. There's a lot I recommend, but one that I've actually written up. It's the only one I've written up. That tells you how much I love this little scope. So remember, you can always help us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com no matter what you buy. But everything there, I own it, I use it, it's in my home. Uh, I would, If I needed it, I'd buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. And the uh, loophole scope certainly fills that bill well. Uh, if a light, if another rifle that fits that description comes into my home, by the time I get home, I'll probably be on my phone ordering this a scope. That's how, how much I love this little scope. All right, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. We are wrapping up Lori McKenna Week today. And today's song is called Humble and Kind. And actually, you when you hear this, you might be, oh, I've heard that song before. Uh, Tim McGraw did that song. He, Tim McGraw did do this song. Lori McKenna wrote it. And this is her acoustic live version of this song. And, of course, Tim McGraw has kind of Dixie-chicked himself in the whole world of gun activism. But uh, Lori McKenna hasn't yet, anyway. I don't know. I See, my other thing, too, with uh, with musicians. I've had people email me once in a while, don't you know these people are, like, far left, whatever? Like, I stopped listening to musicians who uh, who are her Democrats and liberals. I'm not going to have a lot of music left. It just seems that sector is full of that. It's just the mindset there. Um, anyway, this song is basically how we're taught to be when we're kids. The basics of being decent to other people. And so we talked about Project Venus today and the underlying concept being that most people really do want to be decent to other people, and they don't want to take what other people have, etc. Well, I think the best place for people to learn that behavior and to be anchored that way is from parents and grandparents and caregivers when they're kids. That's what this song is really all about, and there will always be a place in the world where the best thing you can do is to be humble and be kind to others. Good way to wrap up the week. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You know there's a light that glows by the front door. 
Don't forget the keys under the map The child that stars always stay humble and kind Go to church cause your mom says to Visit grandpa every chance that you can Won't be wasted time Always stay humble and kind Hold the door, say please, say thank you Don't steal, don't cheat, and don't lie I know you got mountains to climb Stay home.